BridgeBank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to those committed to leveraging innovation to make the world a better place. BridgeBank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. BridgeBank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, it was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Carla Cornejo Villavicencio's new book, The Undocumented Americans, isn't about dreamers, she makes clear at the outset. It's not trying to be an inspirational narrative of hopeful immigrants. Quote, I wanted to tell the stories of people who work as day laborers, she writes, housekeepers, construction workers, dog walkers, delivery men, people who don't inspire hashtags or T-shirts. But I wanted to learn about them as the weirdos we all are outside of our jobs. Cornejo Villavicencio has been a music writer since her teens and was among the first undocumented students to graduate from Harvard. Carla Cornejo Villavicencio, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. You emphasize that you want to present a different narrative about, undocu about undocumented people. Why? Where did that desire come from? Uh, well, I had grown up witnessing... Um, you know, various representations of undocumented people in media and television and film. And then I went to graduate school where I read um, an entire body of work of migrant literature, and I found it profoundly lacking, and uh, I thought I could do a better job. What do you think has been that dominant narrative? Has it been sort of the hardworking, hopeful migrant, essentially? Yeah, you know, my issue isn't with what, like, the right represents us as. I'm not going to try to dismantle, um, you know, a caricature of us as aliens or people who are on welfare, which is not even legally possible. You know, that's not what I'm trying to do. It's it's um, it's what people consider, like, benevolent representations of immigrants, hardworking, selfless, um, un able to withstand pain, humiliation, and hard work that other human beings and other, you know, the, the, the oft-repeated phrase that, that we do jobs that Americans don't want to do. Well, there, there are reasons for that. And there is this idea that we are somehow impervious to pain and our bodies are somehow impervious to pain. And it's like, well, there's a story there. We age terribly. We, um, you know, our bodies ache and uh and you know the people who take care of the aging migrants without insurance and without 
um, savings, without, you know, it's it's the children of the immigrants. It's the dreamers who are supposed to be the, the American dream. It's a complicated story, and there are very few people who are willing to tell it. Yes, it's so interesting that you say that. I mean, right, you are not interested in changing the minds of xenophobes, as you say. You you at one point say you'd rather swallow a razor blade than <laughs> attempt to do That's that. Correct. What you really are taking on in some ways could be described as a more liberal view of uh, undocumented immigrants or this narrative that or this temptation to create this narrative, as as you say. Uh, and And I think through your answer have talked about what you find problematic about it. Could you tell us a little bit about um, the people that you did encounter in your stories? I mean, you specifically chose to go to places like Cleveland, uh, to New Haven, to Staten Island. Can you talk about how you chose those places and, and how you chose the stories of the people you wanted to talk about? Well, I was on DACA. I know people be trying to say it's DACA, but we pronounce it DACA. Um, uh, when, when I wrote the book and, uh, I didn't feel safe traveling to some places in the country. Um, you know, I was pulled out of security lines and went through extensive security many times. And, um, a lot of people thought that my Yale ID would protect me. It did not. Um, but you know, there were, so there were some places where I felt like the most you know, that the, the furthest I could travel was, uh, you know, Cleveland and Flint. And I wanted to tell um, the, the Cleveland story was because I had seen the story of these boys, these small boys whose father had been deported. And I saw that in the local news. And um, my first instinct was to reach out to them, to, well, to their immigration lawyer, and to say, I want to mentor these young men because I, um, I am, I, I am the American dream, and I can tell them how to do it. And I, um, I, I sent them, I like fundraised among my friends, and I sent them a computer because they didn't have a computer, and the password was study hard. Like I had, I had consumed all of this. I had, I had consumed all of this. Um, this narrative and this mythology about social mobility that you're taught when um, you're a poor brown kid in the ghetto and tr trying to get out, you know, and um, I danced my way out, you know, and this is what worked for me. And it, it really isn't the solution for everybody. And it comes at a very high cost. And so I visited them and I bought moleskin notebooks to them because I was like, I'm a writer and uh, I want you guys to write like your feelings out. And it, it like I also wrote, write about myself in the book because I, I went on a journey where I realized that, uh, that, that this doesn't work for everybody. And I realized how um, much the American dream is actually a pyramid scheme where um, – People like me are the top sellers at Mary Kay or Herbalife, and um, we are used by whom? I mean, I mean, I don't know the, the, the creators of the American Dream that just uh, it's ephemeral, you know, like uh, to to recruit um, younger people, to recruit hardworking migrants, to recruit people in Guatemala and Honduras and Mexico, so that they will forget to to feed their spirits 
and they will just work and work and work to get their kids into college. And when their kids graduate from college, their kids will graduate with caps that say, I, my parents came here so that I would graduate. They'll say it in a more poetic way. And they will believe that that is a transaction, but they will not understand that they have to find a life worth living that goes beyond a college education, that goes beyond material comfort. They have to feed their soul. And if they don't, they will crash. Their mental health will crash. And I feel like a canary in the coal mine because a lot of people who are as accomplished as I am or more accomplished than I am are using their public platforms to just say, we want to be citizens. We are American citizens. We are just, you know, perfect civil, you know, examples of, of civic virtue. And it's like, why are you, this is propaganda. You're trying to get white American citizens to not hate us when we should be taking care of our people. There are people who are fighting for legislation, legislative solutions, but we should be taking care of our people who are fragile, who are hardworking, so they don't let it show. But we are very fragile. We've been through a lot of trauma. I mean, in many ways, you're you're saying that that people need to be able to have the freedom to simply be, and, and to not have to justify, um, not have to justify being treated well, or equitably here in the United States um, through the mechanisms that you were just describing earlier. Does that make sense? Yeah, you know, one thing that, that I do in my book that um, I, I definitely noticed readers were a little bit like, mm, this makes me a little uncomfy, <laughs> was that I don't, um, I don't explain why anybody except my parents um, came to America. So usually when you read um, any narrative about immigrants, there's this huge border crossing story. Like, it's very... You know, it's very um, drawn out. The national bestseller, Oprah's book club pick, uh, pick, American Dirt, super, you know, thrilling border crossing story. And we have to ask ourselves why. Why do why does the American reader want this border crossing story? In journalism, in journalism, we are used to a border crossing story, and we are used to explanations about why about the push pull factors that brought a migrant to America and we're also used to to the to the explanation um, of what makes a migrant differ from a refugee um, and so like I use the word migrant to describe both immigrants who are coming here for economic opportunities who are coming here for education who are coming here because they they're, they're leaving their abusive parents or toxic relationships or whatever, or because they're coming here because they're fleeing war. Um, I feel that, you know, we have a right to move and we have a right to make our, our families uh, be happier and healthier. Um, so a lot of us will use the word migrant for both. But there is an obsession with um, legality, which is a construction that has a lot to do with virtue. And so we believe that refugees are virtuous and immigrants are um, kind of um, selfish. So um, so that is why, like, 
I think, you know, in a lot of journalism, you'll see these very sort of explicit explanations of what the push-pull factors were. Narcos, gang rapes, um, being recruited into gangs. And what that does, it allows the typical American reader to cast judgment about whether the migrant deserves to have come to America or not. So you are taking the role of a USCIS officer while you're in your home, and you're like, well, that was a good story. I feel like they deserve to be here. And if the if this situation is something like they were just running away from, like, their abusive parents, but they were a grown adult and they just wanted to make a new life in a new country, you're like, well, you know, maybe they shouldn't really be – I mean, why are they really here, mm-hmm. you know? And you don't really have that. That's not really up to you, is it, to decide whether human beings have the right to mobility. Um, that's not really up to you. And so w- what I decided to do was to just completely not include that for any of um, the people in my book. Yes. And um, I did include it for one of my characters in my book who was a woman who did um, toxic cleanup of ground zero after 9-11, and she got very, very sick. She got cancer, Mm -hmm. and she has severe PTSD. And she told me that the reason she came from Colombia was because she didn't really want to be a mom, and she didn't really want to be a grandma. And so she, she left. And that's not something that's going to make, like, your average reader feel really cozy and warm and inspired by that character. But people are dead. And as someone who is childless by choice, and as someone who, if I had been born in like the 50s and had no access to contraception or um, abortion, if I had found myself stuck with an abusive husband and with children that I did not want, and then I had a chance to escape to like America, the way that America was described back then. Heck yeah, I would have come here. I'm, we're talking with Carla Cornejo Vicencio. Her new book is The Undocumented Americans, and I want to invite you, our listeners, to join us. Are you a child of immigrants? What was your experience like with pressure to succeed or expectations? What stories about immigrants or migrants do you think go untold? And you can join us by calling 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum or email your questions to forum at kqed.org. I mean, I think you really, Carla Corneo Vicencio, ask a que- the really core question of when you are telling stories or when journalism is approaching stories in certain ways, who are they doing it for? What are they affirming as they do it? And I thought it was also very interesting how you approach this book as, well, they're they're very deeply reported stories, each chapter, but at the same time, um, you did not approach them as a journalist. Uh, is something that you describe. I think you might have a passage related to this in your book that I'd love for you to read, but if you'd want to set it up at all by just talking about how you interpret journalism and and approaching the people that you talk to as a journalist versus the way that you chose to do it. Well, I describe that in the in the passage, but uh, I took all the swear words out. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, okay. I am not a journalist. 
journalists are not allowed to get involved the way I have gotten involved. Journalists, to the best of my knowledge, do not try to change the outcome of their stories as crudely as I do. I send water. I fight with immigration lawyers. I raise money. I make arrangements with supernatural spirits to avoid deportations. I try to solve stuff the way an immigrant's kids try to solve stuff for their parents because these people are all my parents. I am their child. If I wasn't their child, and I am their child, I should be patented and mass-produced and distributed to undocumented immigrants at Walmart. I am a professional immigrant's daughter. My job was simple, to tell this story. The government wanted the people of Flint dead or did not care if they died, which is the same thing, and set in motion a plan for them to be killed slowly through negligence at the highest level. What I saw in Flint was a microcosm of the way the government treats the undocumented everywhere, making the conditions in this country as deadly and toxic and inhumane as possible so that we will, so will self-deport. What I saw in Flint was what I have seen everywhere else, what I had felt in my own poisoned blood and bones, being killed softly, silently, and with impunity. And that's Carla Cornelia Vicencio reading from her book, The Undocumented Americans. Let me bring our listeners, and I'll start with Joe in Oakland. Hi, Joe. Hi, Joe. Are you with us? Hello. Can you hear me? I can now. Thanks. Hi. Good Hello, morning. Joe. I have a question. Hi. How are you? Um, I'm a fan of your work, and I was wondering if you could... Um, kind of elaborate on the point you made a little earlier with regard to not kind of placating the um, the kind of normative narrative about the refugee coming here to escape this scary life. And, um, you know, the immigrants shouldn't have to justify their existence um, or their presence or their movement. Um, and with regard to where and when there are um, there are situations in which it actually is valuable and understandable why um, an immigrant would kind of play into that narrative. Um, and I'm thinking kind of like in the immigration, like the legal context where um, you still have these people with extreme um, discretion and power making these decisions and they are most moved by, you know, the, the, the normal narrative of somebody escaping either um, the, the lure and the pressure from gangs or um, other sorts of violence or oppression in their home country that kind of play into the, you know, the white uh, America, uh, you know, progressive narrative. So I'm just wondering if you can think of examples where it actually still makes sense why certain people would play into what is otherwise kind of a dangerous trope. Yeah, uh, totally. I understand why um, even immigration lawyers would counsel their clients to tell these stories as traumatic as they are, if they are traumatic, um, and to emphasize the trauma, because it's, especially in this administration, it's been increasingly difficult to get asylum. Um, and even for people who have TPS, which is temporary protected status for uh, people who have lived through uh, in countries with hur hurricanes or earthquakes and uh, have had their homes completely devastated, um, you know, they're they're being kicked out. So, you know, something that I've written about, about this that is um, you sort of, you have to play by the rules of the game, you know? And so 
but something that I think about in terms of just how regular Americans respond to things. So, for instance, there when it's about refugees, the conversation about refugees, um, using that specific word, refugees, there's like runs, there's bake sales, whatever. But if you were to be like, our small town is having uh, a, a, a walkathon slash run for undocumented immigrants, people are not going to do that. And that's because undocumented immigrants break the law and refugees apply for something that is legal. You know, so it's like we have um, we have this very strong attachment to the law, but not to what Dr. King considered a higher law, which is you know, a, a moral law, which is the ability to, um, you know, keep your family safe. And I think this country considers itself Christian. And, you know, the Bible does say that it is a, it is, a, it is the, the head of the household's job to keep their family safe. And that is their primary duty as a man of faith. Um, so, but what I've always said is that, you know, when I've l- sort of listened to the discourse about um, refugees and undocumented immigrants, um, people seem very interested in, like, the visuals of refugees on water, like whether it's the balseros from Cuba um, on water in their little makeshift rafts or about the refugees from, like, you know, in the middle of sort of the Greek waters. Um, And, of course, the images of the children drowning. Um, but these are brown people who are on water. They're not yet on your land. When they are on your land, and if they are denied asylum, they become undocumented immigrants. And those children who you are mourning, they're drowning. They grow up to become brown teenagers and brown men. And they may not assimilate. They may not fully assimilate to the degree you want them to. Do you still have pity for them? Do you still circulate their pictures around and cry at their pictures? Ivanka Trump cried at the picture of, I believe it was, was it, I don't want to say his name wrong, his little boy named Alan who died at the, at the beach. Uh, she cried. But would she cry if he had survived and become a brown teenage boy who did not have a legal status? and who maybe did not assimilate in the way she would have liked to, which is complete and total assimilation. Um, So I I think that's what I would like Americans to consider, which is why we have pity for the refugee in the water and not for the immigrant on the land. And that is because one is a hypothetical. One is something that we kind of see as Odysseus uh, taking taking a, a... a mythological trip, and one is something that is our neighbor is here, and we have to watch out for him, and we do not like that. So um, that is why I would recommend people to use the word migrant to describe both. Um, it humanizes both experiences, and it recognizes that both need uh, the same humanitarian attention and the same legal protections. Well, Joe, thanks for the question. Carla Cornejovia Vicencio, whose writing do you like? What writers inspire you? Uh, I 
I think the best the best writer hands down I can think of is James Baldwin. Um, I read his stuff when I feel spiritually depleted, and I can't think of a better writer, like objectively. Um, I uh, I think I I really love Joan Didion. I really do, and I think that when I write essays. Um, like when I for for freelancing, I think my style is like ninety nine cent store Joan Didion, um, and um, I love Eileen Miles. Eileen Miles is a huge inspiration of mine. Um, I am inspired also by Kendrick Lamar um, and Jay Z and hip hop. I think they're extraordinary wordsmiths and. They're, oh, and Fiona Apple, uh, their writing inspires me a lot. If I could write just just as just a, a one twentieth as good as they write, I would I would be so happy. And sometimes I read writers who I think are so good that they make me feel angry about myself and make me just go into a swoon and take to bed. And so, you know, I'll keep those in my pocket and won't reveal who they are. So Stephen Miller won't use them against me. Um, but sometimes I'll read contemporaries. Y'all know who you are, who are around my same age and who have gotten uh, more attention than me. And I think I'm more talented than. So I will read them when I want to feel inspired because I just got to keep hustling. Well, at the front of your book, you do quote, Joan Didion, it, and she writes, a place belongs forever to whoever claims it hardest, remembers it most obsessively, wrenches it from itself, shapes it, renders it, loves it so radically that he remakes it in his own image. Jackie writes, as the child of a white immigrant and knowing several Caucasian recent immigrants, I can say none of them needed a valid reason or story. They immigrated in all the ways and reasons you mentioned. Jeanette writes, I really like what Carla is saying. It's uncomfortable, but she is right when she says that everyone has the ability to change their fortune. It takes hard, hard work. My Italian family suffered greatly doing things a horse wouldn't do to get money to send back home. Just like the people she is talking about today, this is the, quote, story of the USA. Nazario writes, you. Nazario writes, I'm a Mexican immigrant. My parents brought me when I was four. I grew up hearing the typical drawn out narrative of the immigrant. It never sat well with me. It seemed to take away from who I am as a human immigrant aside. This is not to say that it is not important for those stories to be told. Thank you for expanding the mindset of readers and creating a new body of work. One Thank of the things, you. Yes. Uh, Thank you, Nazaria, for that. One of the things that you write about is that, and even when you were describing your initial outreach to the children of the person who was deported in Cleveland, you've also written that you were you were brainwashed. And I was struck when I was reading your book when you would, you know, maybe hand a twenty dollar bill to somebody that you had just interviewed, or when when you were giving things that that, that you you that that it does suggest to some extent too a certain degree of distance even from the very people with whom you share the status of being undocumented. Did that ever come up for you? Trying to keep distance from them? Well, just this sense of you now may occupy a slightly different space as a result of, say, having graduated from, from Harvard and in a position to write this and how you navigated or negotiated that. Um, you 
you know, it's like, I'll tell you, I'll tell you about this. You know, the people who call me out for my privilege are often um, pretty elite Latinos who are activists or are in academia and who are citizens um, and who did not understand that, um, as Kendrick Lamar describes in a lot of his songs, he kind of fears that he's one foot in and one foot out of Compton. Um, Kendrick describes having the ter- feeling the terror of not knowing whether he can fit all of Compton in his hotel room. And I, I have been supporting my parents who have been, who are undocumented and who have been unemployed because of coronavirus in New York um, since, the, since late February. And they are separated now, uh, spoiler alert. So I've been supporting three households um, on, you know, I haven't, I've been supporting three households since late February. So it sounds like you're saying, and we just have 10 seconds in some ways, I dare you to judge. Carla Corneo Vicencio, thank you. So all I'm saying is um, it, it doesn't end for children of immigrants. Thank you. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.